Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It seems to me odd that when I was down by the Royal York Hotel, there were, no exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds of security people, motorcycles everywhere, SUVs with military personnel everywhere, police everywhere. And yet, today, as this story about the Speaker of the House introducing a man who fought with the Nazis and getting a standing ovation, the suggestion is that, well, he somehow got into the House of Commons, into the gallery, and nobody knew he was there. I'm, I'm sorry, I know he's 98, but I find it very difficult to believe that only the Speaker of the House knew that that man was there. You have got a leader of a country at war with Russia under your protection in your House of Commons. Are you telling me truly that anybody could have walked in the door in Ottawa? Literally anybody could have got into the visitor's area and nobody knew? Maybe I'm just cynical and skeptical. Let me bring in Kate Harrison. Uh, She is vice chair of Summer Strategies. Joins me now. Kate, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Though if you're looking for cynicism, you might have called the wrong speaker. But <laughs> uh, you mean you've got too much of it or too little of it? Oh no, too too much, especially when it comes to this issue. I, can, I as I say, maybe I just don't understand Ottawa well enough. But I cannot believe that when you have Zelensky there, a man who is representing a country at war with Russia, that they threw open the doors and said, "Anyone who wants to come in, and we don't know who you are, doesn't matter. Come on in." I find that very hard to believe. Well, it, it is hard to believe because. It would be a departure from how other state visits are handled. Uh, We just had Joe Biden visit not that long ago. You're telling me the Prime Minister's Office, Global Affairs Canada, a number of different entities within the government uh, had no say or control over who was attending or not attending those visits. And it's one thing to attend the speech in the gallery. And, you know, there are elements of this, of course, that are that are factual and correct, which is that, yes, the speaker does have a certain number of invitations they can extend. Uh, Yaroslav Hunka, the individual in question, was a constituent of Mr. Rhoda's. Um, clearly, Mr. Rhoda was in the wrong but for having invited him and not done having done his homework. But there are other elements of this, like you just point out the event in Toronto, which was uh, had a heavy security presence. For sure, there would have been a heavy vetting at that uh, for security and just Otherwise, background checks, there was the prime minister's personal reception that happened with Zelensky in Ottawa, which Mr. Hunka was invited to. Um, The idea that the speaker and the speaker alone should bear the responsibility for this happening is silly. Um, And it is an attempt by the liberals to really throw Anthony Rhoda under the bus for having done this. And does he might he lose his job over this? Probably. I think we're on, on Anthony Rhoda watch. But should he alone bear the responsibility for something like this, Scott? No. And if you're a foreign dignitary thinking about coming to Canada, you're looking at this and really questioning what kind of Mickey Mouse operation we're running as a country if this is the kind of thing that can occur with no one at PMO or elsewhere even batting an eye. Well, we were also told today uh, by Karina Gould that... Um you know, that we really shouldn't politicize this. It would be re- it would be inappropriate for anyone. And ironically, as she said, it would be inappropriate to politicize this. The only party she pointed to and said the conservatives in particular, just to, you know, not score political points. Uh, but it would be really inappropriate for anyone to politicize what happened here. Is, is the government this absolutely blind to the irony of all these things? 
Uh, well, certainly th- this is that kind of uh, cynicism and um, unintentional irony uh, and hypocrisy is what happens in a late stage mandate. Um, I don't remember people like Karina Gould coming forward uh, when Pierre Polyev was photographed next to individuals wearing offensive T-shirts saying, now is not the time for politics, right? It only seems to be when liberals are implicated that we should rise above partisanship. But it's also not the first time that the liberals have fumbled the ball here when it comes to vetting uh, on uh, guests and uh, appointments. I'm thinking of the Jasper Atwal invitation on the first round of the India trip. Uh, of course, they've messed up government appointments like Lace Maroof over at Heritage, uh, individual with a record of anti-Semitic comments being appointed uh, to oversee the anti-racism directorate within the government of Canada. So it's not the first time, Scott. I think maybe if it had been, there would be a little bit more understanding. But even so, Zelensky is one of the most targeted individuals on the planet. Um, a quick search of Yaroslav Hunka's name very quickly shows uh, his his past and his history. So for that to not be done, uh, given the high profile and the threat risk uh, of Zelensky's presence, boggles the mind. And again, the attempt to make this uh, a Speaker of the House issue or something only Anthony Rhoda was responsible for is absolutely shifting the blame, mm. and the opposition party should not allow that to happen. You mentioned some other examples where people have, you know, conservative MPs have had a photo taken where there was a, a Nazi flag in the background 200 feet behind them, may not have even known it was there, but got accused of standing with people who wave the swastika right. and others. The Liberals have played this game regularly. When the thing now comes into their lap, is this not the natural outcome of being the ones who play this game? You've got to own this. You've got to, you're going to play it the same way they had to play it. For sure. These kind of attacks are, are a boomerang. And, you know, it's it's pretty commonplace to sit back, especially as a conservative, and say, you know, if a conservative government did this, they would be treated completely differently by the media, in some cases voters. Uh, I think we're probably at the height of, what about conservatism here? Like if, cons- if a conservative government, Scott, had invited a known Nazi into the House of Commons, not just invited him to be there, but gave him a standing ovation, they would be demanding the prime minister's resignation. And I think a lot of media would be on side saying, yeah, you know, that's warranted given the circumstances. But uh, the liberals ought to be treated with, with kid gloves. Everything they do is not intentional when they screw up. It's just total incompetence, right? Like there's never... Uh, a reflex to ascribe malice to any kind of a decision that the Liberal government makes. It's all about how incompetent they are. So certainly, though, they've uh, played that card so many times that I think it's gotten a little bit stale. And it's why you're seeing now, after about eight and a half years, people say, "Okay, wait a minute, Um, maybe the Liberals are more than just incompetent here. Maybe they uh, really haven't been doing the work they need to do to make sure uh, things like this don't happen. And, you know, in the cases of some of the um, individuals I men- mentioned earlier, Jasper Atwal, Lace Maroof, like those were hand-selected appointees um, from the government and, and chosen to receive invitations. So that's, you know, this should not be treated that much differently. And again, Anthony Roda did mess up, probably going to cost him his job if I were to guess, but he alone shouldn't bear the entire responsibility. Well, uh, the thing that amazed me today, there's been a lot that amazes me. This whole story is amazing. The thing that amazed me is on a day like this, that the prime minister was not in question period. 
And it, it seemed like, and you know, we're, we're, we're ascribing intent here, but it seemed like let's let him go and let the, yeah. the speaker, let's let him go and take the bullets. I don't need to be there to take bullets. It's not the first person that has kind of been thrown under the bus and been allowed to take the blame. And the prime minister doesn't really have to take the blame for these things. Well, and you you saw the opposite to what I think people expected the reaction today to be, which was an apology and ownership and accountability. Instead, you had Karina Gould stand up and actually try to move a motion to have the comments completely erased from the record of parliament. So they were try- the government was trying to pull a fast one by basically control xing everything that happened last Friday in the in the House of Commons. Um, that's the opposite of accountability and ownership. Uh, they could have read in an apology to the House uh, from the government of Canada. They didn't. They left it up to Anthony Rona to, to twist in the wind and do that solo. So uh, they haven't learned anything from this. Anthony Rona, he's not a scapegoat because there is some ownership here, but they're certainly content to have him be the person who bears the ultimate responsibility. And I think they're going to do what they always do in a situation of a crisis, which is skate on this as long as they possibly can, try to make it somebody else's problem, and then eventually be backed into a corner where, you know, it is discovered that maybe they had some advance uh, heads-up or notice of who was going to be there. It's shocking to me that the PMO wouldn't know who's going to be recognized, for example, in the Speaker's comments. That kind of autonomy um, just isn't likely, especially in a PMO like this one who wants to mm. control so many things. There's so many things that I'd like to talk about. We're short on time, but let, let me just go to the one other one. You mentioned the word apology. I, I've lost track of how many apologies over the eight years that this prime minister has offered for the sins of others who have done things wrong that we have to apologize for because they are horrendous and hurtful and blah, blah, blah. And yet I can't, as I racked my brain today, find one example where he has apologized for the sins of himself or his government. Why is it so impossible for this prime minister to actually have a self-inward look, a little self-deprecation, a little acknowledgement that, you know what, it's possible to be wrong once in a while? Yeah, there there is, I think, just a level of um, <laughs> delusion that, that's around the, the prime minister in terms of the role he plays in the foibles and the flaws of his government. Just last week, he was speaking at a conference about, you know, why Canadians are so angry right now, why they're so upset and frustrated. And he was talking about um, the issues Canadians are facing as though he had nothing to do with why they were so upset. He was talking about how you need to speak to people with empathy and understand their concerns. And it's like, Minister, you're the one that is causing this level of anxiety and concern, but he speaks about it and so many issues as though he is devoid of any kind of responsibility in terms of how we got there. Um, there's an expression that the Achilles heel for conservatives is meanness and the Achilles heel for liberals is arrogance. And I think that we're seeing over and over again through the absence of apologies and through um, kind of the the uh, wiping away of certain mistakes that the government makes without any accountability or ownership, we're seeing that arrogance really come to the fore. And if the public opinion data is true, um, Canadians are really getting tired of that, even if Justin Trudeau hasn't clued into that just yet. It it is, as I say, uh, considering all the things that people before him have done that must be apologized for, it is just... 
it is surprising that the, the, the awareness of an apology is there, just not the ability apparently to see that sometimes it's possible to apologize for one's own party's foibles. But um, as you say... Uh, and not every not everything is a learning opportunity for us. I was waiting for that today. I was waiting for that today. That today's a learning opportunity for Canadians. Uh, and uh, I th- smartly they did. Now, he wasn't in the House of Commons to offer that one. Maybe he might have. But thankfully, none of the other ones said that because I think somebody might have crossed the... Not to cross party lines to join the other party. You might have strangled somebody if they yeah, tried to say yeah, that, that one. that would have been caused quite a commotion. But you saw, you saw a number of Liberal MPs make that case yesterday. Um, and perhaps it is true that uh, Holocaust education does need to be a bigger, um, have a bigger presence, but that shouldn't, that is not an excuse for what happened in the House last week. Mm. And anybody, um, you know, outside of official Ottawa can see that. Kate Harrison, uh, Vice Chair of Summer Strategies. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today, Kate. Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. These are tricky times for medical schools and for the medical profession because it's well documented. Everyone has heard and talked about the fact that we are short on doctors, family doctors in particular. A lot of people looking for a family doctor, not able to necessarily get one. But on the other hand, there are, because of our aging population, it seems, those who are family doctors are facing far more complicated things to deal with, medical conditions that they now have walk into their office. It's not just doing a physical necessarily. There are complicated, complicated things that require a very high level of training and proficiency. So how do you hurry through as many doctors as you possibly can to get them into offices while at the same time having those who are coming have that level of proficiency? Well, as I say, it's a conundrum because some say get as many doctors through as possible. Others say, including the College of Family Physicians of Canada, Maybe we should increase the length of family residency, family medicine residency from two years to three to cover some of those things. How do we balance all this and, and where does this thing go? Dr. Jason Profetto is a family physician and chair of clinical skills and the MD of administrations with McMaster joins us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, very happy to have you on because this is such a tricky one because there is a side, as I say, that would seem to say anybody that can listen through a stethoscope, <laughs> give them their license and let them get to work because we're so short on people. But we do also not want them or anyone else to go into practice and not know the things they need to know to do all the complicated things that are being presented to them now. Yes. And I, I see the problem um, similar, but a little bit different. And I, I think this move by the College of Family Physicians is an interesting one. The greatest problem I think that we're seeing at the moment is we are graduating a lot of medical students and a good chunk of medical students are going into family medicine. But then the family medicine graduates, and this is the specific point that is becoming difficult. Family medicine graduates, roughly nine of 10 do not practice comprehensive family medicine and what most people would think is an actual traditional family medicine practice where it's open Monday to Friday, coverage on the weekends, coverage on the evenings. The vast majority of our graduates are not going into family medicine practice, and that is the specific issue that's being created. Whether or not this change in the length of training for family medicine residency will greatly affect that outcome 
is to be determined. And I, I have a few thoughts, but I'll pause there. Okay, so why would, if, if 9 of 10 are not going to be family doctors, wh- why not, is, I, I don't want to be insulting anyone, but is family medicine seen as, uh, in medical circles, as a lower tier of medicine where I can be a, a specialist in something and it's much more complicated and exciting? Yeah, so, in, in just a, so every family medicine graduate that graduates will be a family doctor, whether or not they're opening up a, a comprehensive, full-throttle family medicine clinic is a specific issue. And I think what's happening is family medicine as a business and a practice of medicine in particular is turning out to be very, very challenging. And there's a few specific reasons. Number one, which a lot of people don't appreciate, is that your mobility is decreased. So if I want to be a family medicine doctor, have a practice, and work full-time, I have to commit to a specific geography. You, you, you don't really have the ability to, you know, do a couple of days here and then do a few more days in Toronto and then travel. Doing that and fragmenting your time is not really feasible or conducive to having a family medicine practice. Okay. And the second major reason is that to the amount of responsibilities that are currently being delegated or dumped to the family doctor is just increasing every year. And if you compare now to 10 years ago, the amount of responsibilities has jumped significantly. And I think these things are slight deterrent or perhaps strong deterrent for a lot of the new family medicine graduates going into family medicine practice. So what do people want to go into now? I mean, if, if, you're, if you were talking to people, if you did a, a straw poll at a medical school, where, what kind of thing do they want to do? So proportionately, the vast majority, not the, sorry, proportionately, the, the largest group of medical students will still go into family practice. That's roughly right now between 30 and 40% of medical students, but it depends on the school. And then the next biggest chunks, you'll see internal medicine and pediatrics. Internal medicine is things like cardiology, respirology, like a lung specialist, joint specialist, rheumatology, the people who do uh, colonoscopies, like gastroenterologists. So uh, internal medicine and pediatrics, a specialization in babies and children, those are the number two and three most popular, but number one, is still family medicine. We've always sort of thought that 50% of the medical school graduates should go into family medicine, but that number has decreased slightly over time. And last year, our numbers were in the high 30-ish percent. So just under 40% of our medical students went into family medicine residency at McMaster University. So if the greatest number are still, even if the number's down, if the greatest number are still doing that, and that seems like we would be putting out a reasonable number of family doctors. Why have we not been able to keep up with the man that is it just that we have so many more people in the country and we can't produce family doctors who are going to stay in that field fast enough or is there something else going on? Yeah. And this is the fascinating paradox that we've observed, right? So the thought was sequential, get more medical students in the medical school, graduate more medical graduates, and a greater proportion number, an absolute number, that number will increase in terms of the amount of people going to family medicine residency. But what we think of with family doctors is not what people think of in terms of family practice. So a lot of family doctors, they work in the emergency, they'll work in the hospital, they'll go do some rural stuff, they'll work in operating rooms, they'll work in long-term care facilities. But the operation of a family practice, where you say, hey, I have a problem today, I'm going to call the family doctor, hopefully I can get in today or this week or whatever. That specific service has been on the decline. 
So what we need to do is focus the efforts a little bit more on that as opposed to just graduating greater absolute numbers. And there's a specific list of deterrents that are theorized to be preventing family medicine graduates to go into family medicine practice. All right. When you say we shouldn't just graduate more, how, just very quickly, do you know how many students are admitted for first year medical school every year at McMaster? Yeah. So traditionally the number is 203 medical students okay. in the first year class. Okay. So let's say, cause I believe, and also those people who get in are exceptional, I mean, it's hard to get in. It's exceptional students who are getting in. What if we made it 400 students and instead of they all have 98% and wonderful stuff, it was 96% still exceptional people. But if we add double the number of people at medical schools across the country, we would presumably then have more other doctors, yes, but would also more family doctors, which would help us resolve our problem. Why would that not work? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And people have talked about this for some time. The fallacy is that just increasing the absolute number when you look at the wash and what comes out, you're going to have more family medicine clinics. There's a variety of barriers to that. Namely, it's actually very difficult resource-wise to teach all of these medical students. And I can tell you, even the 203 incoming medical students every year, to teach that amount, to get preceptors, clinics available, all the clerkship rotations is extremely challenging. Mm. Like extremely challenging to the point that it just barely works. So even increasing it by, say, 15% would probably break the bank in that regard. Wow. So the other thing, though, is that it's not just about absolute numbers. You really need to produce a specific skill set and a specific type of doctor that is not only well-rounded and knowledgeable and able to practice, but is actually comfortable with more or less the operation of a small business, which is a fairly foreign concept in medical school. So there's got to be a little bit more of an academic and cultural shift in the way we prepare the medical graduates to become family doctors as opposed, as opposed to just pumping in the numbers. And, and the other quick thing there too is that you can put as many medical students in a medical school as you want, but medical school is a long journey and it's very resource intensive. And the way you coordinate all of this acad- academia, the teaching, the clerkship, is very, very critical to the output at the end of medical school. And if you don't do it right, you're not going to have good, competent, long-lasting medical doctors. Mm. We are already over time, but i got to ask one more question, and so we'll have to keep this tight, unfortunately. But one of the things we have heard a lot in recent years is there are many people who have come to this country who may have been physicians in their own country. Different standards, I understand, But one of the knocks is it's very difficult for them to be able to get their license here. Is there a way to expedite the process so those who may be qualified or very close to qualified could get there faster? Easier said than done. The process of certifying, sufficiently certifying any any doctor that's going to practice is more complex than it actually seems. And it doesn't matter how you swing it. You need a lot of time and a lot of resource to ensure that you're doing it properly. It's a fascinating discussion. I wish there was an easy answer, but uh, clearly not the case. Dr. Jason Profetto, family physician at McMaster Uni- and at McMaster University. Uh, very great conversation today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know. Uh, last weekend, Don Robertson had Burton Cummings playing in his backyard. Who'd you have this weekend? 
had to drop over the house and he played in the basement. Yeah? Yeah, he used Suze's piano and it was I thought maybe Robert, Robert Plant dropped by, maybe I thought, or uh, Gene Spring- Simmons or Springsteen. Springsteen. Or, yeah. I talked about that. I was going to say uh, Taylor Swift, but I know she was at the football game in Kansas City yesterday, so it couldn't be, but uh, yeah. We'll figure something out. There you go. You know, I you always tease about uh, uh, um, Citizen of the Year. Yes. So I forgot to mention that today. Don, by the way, is the owner of Dun- of the Com- of Comp Choice Realty of the Dundas Real McCoys, and just to set it up, the 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year, and again one of these days soon. Carry on. I asked who I ran into a guy that would know, and I said, "Who was the last Citizen of the Year in Dundas?" He said, "I think it's you." Oh, they stopped doing it. Yeah. I think what's happened is they they got so low they said, "Look, we can't keep digging." Well, they either so that can't would make me it. the reigning. Well, they either can't top it or you <laughs> broke the program. I'll have to look that up during a commercial. Ben's going to look it up for me after he takes the call. I got some calls coming in for the quiz, and then he'll find is there has there been a Dundas Citizen of the Year since 2014? Because that would make it a lot easier to say the reigning. <laughs> Dundas Citizen of the Year. It's less complicated to introduce you each time. So there you go. And, and you know, there's lots to, lots of reason to think that you should still be the reigning Citizen of the Year, but... Uh, Take your time thinking of one. Oh, well, I, I, <laughs> I, I got 50 minutes. I'll figure something out. Uh, lots of stuff to get to today, and I, I wanted to... Um, I wanted to ask you about this. I, I've been meaning to ask you this for weeks now, and I've had it on my list week after week after week, and I always never get to it or I forget about it. was reading something about European hockey the other day, as I said, like three or four weeks ago now, and something that many leagues are now doing in Europe after a hockey game is the officials, not the linesmen, the referees are required after the players and coaches do their press conference, the referees have to come up and answer and explain calls or explain why things were done or what they saw or what they didn't see. What do you think about that idea? Because there are so many things that are controversial calls. And I'm looking at this thinking, Don, some people might say, oh, you're just going to hang those refs out to dry. I think it might be a thing for them to be able to explain why something didn't get called, which some people might say, well, that then makes total sense. I think it's a great idea. It's an interesting idea. I mean... It, there would be all kinds of various responses because every referee's personality is different. You know, the uh, the better referees would have the confidence to. And, I mean, I'd have done it. Somebody said, how did you not call that high sticking in the corner? And if I say, because the guy's six foot three skated in front of me, I didn't get a good look at it. And that seems like and the, that's the answer. And that's a perfect answer that then how, how do you argue against that? Well, the one that I would likely say that would get me in trouble, but me being me, I probably wouldn't care. Why wasn't that a slash at center ice? And I'd say it was already 6-1. Like, I can't put that team down and, like, you don't want a blowout. And back years ago, you didn't want the score to get to 7, 8, 9, 1. Because then fights. The bench is empty again. So you tried to control it a little bit. And, you know, and you can... And anybody that tells you that hasn't happened is is being uh, uh, disingenuous, disingenuous, uh, because it does happen. But the only things you can't let go are things that would, you know, injure a player. Or but I mean, you can uh, if a guy hooks a guy so he can't score a goal. I mean, turn a blind eye to it. They don't need another goal, and they don't certainly don't need a penalty. So it would be fascinating to see how they actually respond to it and. 
It'd be interesting to see how many fans would stay to have the interest to find out. I guess it would depend on how interesting the answers were. There would be guys that uh, that I can think of that would have been Jack Clancy, uh, a fire captain in Hamilton, was quite a character when uh, when he officiated. Bill Dvorsky was notorious for talking to the crowd. His uh, son Paul and was a referee, and Greg was a linesman. Like he'd have been so entertaining to talk. Bill to. Friday. Bill Friday's a great yeah, one. Hamilton guy. Bill Friday would have been. So some guys would be like watching paint dry. And some guys would be more entertaining maybe than the game. And there's there there would be games, there would be a lot of games where there would be nothing to talk to the officials about. Because I mean, honestly, yep. if, if it's a 6-1 game, who cares if you missed a trip when it was 6-1 to one or whatever. But it's it's more the idea that if there was a controversial play, that the expectation is that they will come out and they will answer questions about why or what they saw. I mean, I... I would even love to hear something in human words because, you know, the problem is you get these bureaucratic stuff. Stock answers. From the league if they put out a press release about why someone was suspended. Well, player number 19 for the Maple Leafs delivered a blah, blah. No, have, if you are looking at something in the replay booth, I'd love to be able after that for the TV people at least to get connected and say, walk us through what you saw here that made that call, that call. You could do it during a game. It would be fascinating. They'd have to do it with the announcers, the play-by-play people, because it would become boring and mundane if you were doing it with the crowd listening and so on. Oh, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean on TV with So you the want play-by-play. Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph to be able to talk about it because they heard the ex- real explanation rather than guess. Right. So, the, so, so something happens and... It's not called offside, but it, or it's not called goalie interference, but it sort of looked like goalie interference. We thought it was going to be goalie interference. The press, bo- the the replay booth says no. Yeah. So on on TV, you now have the person who made that decision say, "Here, here's what I saw, and here's why I decided it was not goalie interference." The, I think that would be great. The explanations would be interesting because some of them would be, you know, the goal the goaler went out to make a play of the puck, so we put him in a, himself in a vulnerable position. He did that, not the offending player. The people you think was the offending player, the goalie actually set him up for the call, and it, w- it would have been a bad call. The only call we could have made in that play was interference on the goalie for getting in his way when yep. he didn't have the puck. But again, I think it would be a fascinating thing. I would love it. I would love it in, I mean, baseball is getting a little closer to this because now after the replay, even though they don't explain exactly what they saw, the umpire has to say, you know, after review, the runner at second, the the the, the second baseman stands. has foot was off the bag. Runner is safe. Uh, yep. Play is overturned. Whatever. I I just I think it would be. I mean, football does still football doesn't have it, but at least with football, what they've done is they've found some in the NFL anyway. They've found some personable, entertaining for the most part former officials to explain the rule. And the way that what they do that I like so much is they have the person usually say what the call should be before we get the call and then break it down after. And then, you know, if this person had said, no, no, that's gotta be a, that's gotta be a roughing the passer. And then it comes back as not, then, you know, I, I just, these things, uh, as much as you and I are on the radio talk, I I don't want to hear 
me explain why that should or should not be goalie interference if there's a ref who can do it and try and explain what is actually being thought in the booth. As long as the referee was prepared to do the objective thing and not always be trying to protect his former brethren. Well. You know, like Radley clearly, maybe it wasn't clear to everybody, but he probably got blocked out and didn't get a good look at it. You know what somebody's going to say? I don't know what the hell he was thinking. He was looking right at it. Well, that's where you have things. Call should be. That's where you have things like helmet cameras, which is expanding. Where now you can see what the ref probably now you can't know exactly because his eyes could be looking, yep. but you can at least have a good idea. Was there a body somewhere right there where you could say, "Oh yeah, that guy probably did block him," or you know, the whatever. Te- technology has changed so much. When you talk about uh, helmet cams and so on, and I don't think they're using them a lot in the National Hockey League, but. Um, in, in a situation when there was one referee on the ice and it was me, the, if there's, if there's a plan at the end near the net, your, your job was to make sure the puck either went in or out and heavens knows what could be going on beside the net. I mean, there could be two guys slugging it out, but your job was to make sure that it was a goal or not a goal. So you might not see some of that stuff and that's where you used to get in trouble. How did you not see it? Well, because there was no instant replay and there was only one referee, your job was, no goal judges, to determine if it was in or not. Yeah. So you have to make sure you don't miss a goal. If you miss somebody punching somebody in the app, that's a different conversation. But that's where the focus was. Now in the National Hockey League, I mean, they do focus on whether it's a goal or not, but if they don't see it, there are 55 cameras that will tell you if it's in or not. The one thing I think it would have an effect on really is, you know, there was a, a, uh, what's his name? Um, I can't think of his name. The ref who was basically let go for his mic was on (laughs) and he didn't know it and basically admitted that he was managing a game. He was letting something, he was, he was giving a penalty early to make sure that everybody would settle down and it wasn't necessarily. Just wanted to let everybody know it was a boss. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily a penalty, but I want to make sure they know that, you know, what's going to be the call, whatever it is. I think that the idea of evening things up would be far less if you had to come out and explain. Because I've ne- here's the thing I've never understood about hockey people, Don, um, one of them. <laughs> Why at the end of the game we expect that penalties are going to be similar in number between two teams? If you've got the team that's the most penalized team in the league playing the least penalized team in the league, why at the end of that game should penalties be roughly even? Well, I would expect that one team is going to have way, way more penalties. That's the way they play. Well, it, 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 you, you kind of contradicted yourself with your opinion. If, if, if in fact, the goal is to keep them fairly even, one team won't have a whole lot more penalty minutes than another team. No, 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 no. If I'm not that's say- the objective. I wasn't it. saying that. I was saying the opposite. I was saying that you won't have refs then trying to even things up oh, if see. they have to answer for it because... One team might have committed eight infractions and the other one committed one. That doesn't mean the refs have done a poor job because the penalties are imbalanced at the end of the game. They called what was on the ice, not what they think they were supposed to do to get things balanced by the end of the game. Well, I've suggested to some guys uh, over my years that it's a little late to even it up now. I mean, the score will maybe be 5-1 and you've given up three power plays and all of a sudden you get two or three power plays when the game's out of reach and everybody knows it. Exactly. Now you're going to even it up. Yeah. Now you can see everything, you know, but there's always going to be to a certain extent the managing of it a little bit, but without the bench clearing brawls and the fighting all the time, it's not as significant. 
And I think you're finding that the officials, uh, I mean, I sit on the officiating committee for the OHA, so I probably shouldn't be flapping my gums as much as I am. But the, but the reality is you're really now judged on the calls. So if it's an injury or a potential, potential injury, you have to call it. And there's no choice in it. The, even the accidental, if you clip a guy and you draw blood and, and somebody else lifted your stick and it went up and my stick goes up and hits your face, I had nothing to do with it. I got to go. Mm-hmm. So that, so some of it doesn't make as much sense as I'd like to see it. But you bring up an interesting point. makes me think of football. Like on f- every play, there's holding. Yeah, pretty much. Every play, somebody's holding somebody under the definition of the rule book. So there'd be more flags in the air than there are airplanes during a war, right? Like there'd be flags flying around all the time. So there's judgment involved. Yes. And some of the guys that, you know, when you say that, it brings to mind, was it Ron Luciano? Mm -hmm. The umpire. The umpire. Like, wouldn't he be fun to interview after a game? Sure he would. And they used to. After every inning? Yeah, and then he would talk. But they, you know, but it's... Um, but they've tried to take the personality away from it. The right. objective is now to walk out of a Leaf game or a Montreal Canadiens game or a Brantford Bulldogs game and say, who refereed tonight? That's always been the They objective. don't even have names on the back of their shirts anymore. No. Like, they just, they've stripped the personality out of it. I mean, when I was around, they had, our names were on it. And th- there were some people say some rude things to me over the years. Come on. Yep. Happened. I don't believe that. I said some rude things back, too. Oh, I really chance. don't believe that. <laughs> uh, we did a little research, Don, and the Dundas Citizen of the Year has been awarded since, so you are not the defending champion. However, however, you've, you've ha- held out on us here. You kept information from us that we did not know, and Don or, uh, Ben has found during the last segment the Unity Western Days in Saskatchewan named its 2022 Citizen of the Year. The Unity Agroplex was buzzing with excitement as people were welcoming back the event that was absent since 2019 due to the pandemic, the story said in sasktoday.ca. Longtime resident and former town councillor Don Robertson was announced as the 2022 recipient. You are Dundas and Saskatchewan Citizen of the Year. Who knew? I don't like to brag. (laughs) <laughs> you, uh, a, an outline of your accomplishments was read out at the bank and will be included in another story as details become available. <laughs> it was so long, they couldn't even publish it in their online publication. So Apologi- congratulations. Apologies to whoever's won since me. The guy that gave me the information is incorrect. I will say this, uh, when you showed up for your Citizen of the Year award in Saskatchewan, you were in great disguise. You looked like, uh, what was his name? Who was Tom Selleck's assistant in Magnum <laughs> PI. <laughs> yeah. The bowler hat. The, no, the, yeah, the bald guy. Yeah. I can't think of Henry Higg- uh, Higgins. 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 You look just like Higgins. <laughs> Your disguise was excellent. So congratulations. Who, who would on not that. look as much like me as somebody else here? Mm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, Shohei Otani, you know, the baseball player yeah. for the Anaheim Angels. Uh, wrecked his elbow and is out for the year now. And so he's already back in Japan. He's going to have surgery and he won't pitch next year, they say, but he will be able to hit. Uh, Mike Trout, perennial MVP candidate. Uh, He's also out with an injury now for Anaheim for the rest of the year. But here's the thing about this. You have got probably the two leading players in baseball playing for your team. 
someone could argue Aaron Judge or whatever, but you've got two guys who are among the top five players in the game are always going to be talked. And Otani, who is a freak because he pitches at an incredible level and hits at an incredible level. Last guy to do that was Babe Ruth. Pretty much. And not against the level of competition Otani is going against. These two guys have been, uh, so Mike Trout has been on the Angels for 13 years now. Shohei Otani won the Rookie of the Year in 2018. He's played six seasons with the team. In that time, one playoff appearance, not for Otani, this was before his time, and zero playoff wins. Mike Trout has never won a playoff game. He is an MVP candidate every year. Otani is now an MVP candidate every year. How horrible a front office do you have to have when you've got nine guys, you have to play nine guys every day. It's not even like in hockey where you are running out 20 guys that you need to make it go. You're playing nine guys a day. I know there's pitchers and relief pitchers and all the rest, but nonetheless, that you cannot somehow find a way to make a winning team when you have two of the best players in baseball. That to me, I saw that today uh, when I went back and looked at Anaheim's record. I was like, how did you, that's, that's more difficult than winning a World Series almost. Isn't Oakland trying to tank so they can move? Yes, they well, they are moving. They're not even right. trying to tank anymore. They're just so they just happen to have the two best players playing on a double A team. Well, that's not yeah. Oakland. This is Anaheim. Oh, Anaheim. O- Oakland is moving, but Anaheim oh, is. Sorry, sorry, that's sorry, okay. Sorry. No, no, Anaheim is staying there. But no, it's it's it, well, it's a challenge, but it just gives you how important the team game is. Yes, but now if, you, if now here's here's the irony, if one of your top two hitters is also a pitcher. That could tell you a story. I mean, it's pretty unusual. I I, I wonder. He's got a bad elbow. Why did he just pitch with the other one? <laughs> he probably could have. If he's that good, he I probably... wouldn't be surprised he would be their second best pitcher throwing with the other hand, arm. But if you are a team, that, and, and Anaheim has never been shy about spending money. That's the other thing. This yeah. is not a poor, small market team. If you've got these two players at their prime, Two of the greatest players in baseball. Two, two of two guys who are surefire. I would say Hall of Famers. Trout, Trout may, for sure. Trout may have played through his prime there. Yeah, probably. Right. But 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 Trout is an absolute surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, and Otani probably needs another year or two at this level, but he will be. Yep. Um, how do you not build a team around them? How do you not recognize we have this moment in time? with greatness in our lap, and we have got to find a way. How do you not put together a team? That, that, to me, that's, that's just outrageous general managing. Because everybody isn't Pat Gillick. Pat Gillick sees the opportunity, you know, stand Pat, Pat. Yeah. But when he saw it was there, he went after it. I mean, we talked about it last week when you bring in Winfield and Ricky Henderson and everything else, and they're, they're clearly they're not doing it, or if they're doing it, they're really making a lot of bad decisions. That's that's got to be got to be bad decisions. It's right? got to be terrible decisions because even if you look, there are teams that aren't necessarily spending a lot of money, but their scouting is okay, and you get a few guys who come in and have outstanding years, better than you expected. Yep, and it carries you. Tampa Bay's pretty good at that. The, uh, they, they don't sure spend are. any money. They sure and even Oakland. You mentioned Oakland. They're terrible this year. But over the last number of years when they have not been a big spending team. Is Billy Bean still there? No. But even when they've not, I don't think so. But even when they've been a, not a big spending team, um, 
they still, every once in a while, it just comes together for them. It's just, it's amazing to me that you could have these two. I mean, imagine you had, go back, you, you've, got, you've got Gretzky and Lemieux playing on your hockey team, and you can't make the playoffs. Because the guys that you've surrounded them with are so bad, apparently, that you can't take advantage of the two generational talents. You, uh, you, you brought to light a conversation. Dreisaitl and McDavid. Yeah, but they make the playoffs at least, and they win some playoff games, and they play well in the playoffs. Mike Trout has never won a single playoff game. It's it, you know, it is a game around. Um, by the way, uh, Billy Bean is still with Oakland, but not in the position he was before. Um, he's never won a game. He's never won a game. How for Major League Baseball to have one of their greatest ever players, and Mike Trout truly is one of the no. greatest ever, not just this generation. He's one of the greatest ever players. To have no playoff resume, to never play on the big stage, to never make the World Series, to never play even in an American League Championship Series. It's, it is an, it's an unbelievable waste of a guy that, I mean, I'm sure Major League Baseball long ago, without being official about it, may have called up Anaheim and said, how could we convince you to trade him to the Yankees? Yeah. Just to put him in a, or the Red Sox, anywhere else. Just somewhere where people are going to pay attention to him because he's buried out there. Yeah. Well, and, and you're right. And and the better you are, the the more media you're going to get, the more press you're going to get. But you're right. If they're perennially just not a factor, are they out now? Yeah, yeah. And, and listen to this. Okay, so since Mike Trout, now I won't even go to, well, I'll tell you when Otani joined, but in Mike Trout's first year, they finished five games out. Second year, 18 games out. Third year, they made it to the playoffs but lost in a sweep to the Royals. Next year, missed by three. Next, and, that, and the year that they, they lost, so he was the rookie of the year. He was the MVP of the year they made the playoffs and lost to the Royals. In uh, 2016, Mike Trout was MVP. They were out by 21 games. <laughs> the next year, missed by 21 games. Shohei Otani shows up. He is playing with Trout. And he's the rookie of the year. They missed by 23 games. Trout is MVP the next year again. They missed by 35 games. <laughs> then they missed by 10 games, 18 games with Otani now as MVP. And then last year they missed by 33 games. It's, it's Don, it's honestly, it, it seems to me that it would be easier to win a wor- to win a World Series than it would be to be this bad with these two guys on your roster. Are you sure they're playing as many games as everybody else? Yeah, that's right. Somebody, <laughs> somebody tricked them. They stopped at 100 and then couldn't figure out why they were falling behind. I just, it, it's staggering to me that anybody could be that bad a general manager that you put together a team like that with those guys. So the, so the business they're is 30 sports. N- they're they're uh, 17 and a half out right now, by the way. So the business of sports says to me, how does it affect their attendance? When you've got two absolute stud superstars and you can't win, do you draw any fans? Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, you do. And um, four years ago, five years ago, my wife and I were going on a trip. We were out in LA and went to a game in Anaheim at the Dodger Stadium with our friends. And it is an absolutely gorgeous park. It looks like crap outside. (laughs) Like when you're driving up to it, it is just... It looks like absolutely nothing. It looks like an old crappy 
silly ballpark with a giant A's hat that you walk under to get in. And like, it's just, it doesn't, but when you get inside the way they've done all that outfield, if you've ever seen the outfield, it's all fake. It's all, it's not real rocks and mountain and everything that was all built there with a waterfall, but it looks amazing. It looks so beautiful. And the field is perfection. And real grass. Yeah. It's just perfection. California should be. That was the place where I caught two foul balls nine pitches into the game. Caught one, I caught a foul ball in batting practice, gave it to a kid in a Blue Jays hat, and then caught the eighth ball pitched to the game, and the ninth ball pitched hit the seat behind me. Coming in at about 500 miles an hour, I had my hand out to catch a third one and then went, nope, <laughs> not, not going to break my hand, didn't have a glove. Well, sadly, it sounds like you, you would be one of their best outfielders. Oh, man. It was, but it, it's, go- so the answer is, it's a gorgeous park. It's a beautiful park. So yes, they do get people to go because it's a, it's California. It's a lovely night out. It's always great weather or most of the time. And, um, and you can usually get a, you know, and the seats are all good. And so they do get crowds, but my goodness, like how do you not, yeah. and, and again, use, use whatever example. I mean, if, if, if Jordan and Pippen had never even made the playoffs together. And that's not hyperbole. That's legitimately what we're talking about. Five guys versus nine guys. A lot of it's pitching, though. you got to pitch. Now, the bad part is your best hitter is your best pitcher, and now he's out. Yeah, well. But it apparently had no effect. It had no effect prior to that. They were still way out of it. They're still 75 games out. Yeah, yeah. I just can't fathom that knowing you've got these guys in your roster that you can't figure out a way to say, look, if we have to spend like the Yankees for a few years just to take advantage of this, let's get some players in here to win. Just amazing to me. But you can not watch them now because they're both out. So, um, but it's still a lovely night at the park if you're, <laughs> if you're down in Anaheim. If you happen to be going by. Not far from Disneyland. It's, it's, it's all very there. close there. It's all very nice. There was a... Um, an update at Hamilton Council last week about what's going to be happening with the new arena and Oakview Group was there who is uh, going to be operating it. And there was, you know what, the, there there was a lot of encouraging and potentially exciting news about them putting in almost $300 million and some of the other things that are going to happen with it with Oakview Group. And and it was, you know, it was good to good to have some optimism around this thing. But one of the things that was said there that it was an interesting, just sort of dropped in was about teams and stuff. And, um, uh, the guy from Oakview group, the president, Canadian president of Oakview group who was talking mentioned, maybe at some point we might want to try and lure an expansion team from the new professional women's hockey league to Hamilton. I think that would work. I think in a, in an arena, if the Bulldogs struggled Sometimes with attendance. Do you think that kind of level of hockey could work in a 17,500 seat arena? Not right now. Not right now. I don't think, uh, I don't think it's ready. And unless I'm missing this, and I don't think I am, the National Hockey League have always said if you have one women's league, one women's league, then we're going to support it. They have that. Um, every team is playing where there's an NHL team. Mm-hmm. And I think that support from the National Hockey League, just like the WNBA, there's no coincidence there, right, that you have an infrastructure there that should be able to help boost your attendance and promote the team, although that doesn't seem to be working with the Argos. But you don't but necessarily need a second front office. Your no. ticket people can sell tickets. Your people who work there can do the jobs that they have. It's all there. 
And I think at one time you'll find that uh, Maple Leaf fans, once uh, once one group owned them all, you could get Leaf tickets, but you had to buy Raptor tickets. And now the Raptors stand alone, but that was part of the process. So I don't think from that standpoint it would be viable right now. I don't know what buildings the Women's League is going to play in, but I don't believe it's going to be the Air Canada Centre. I suspect very strongly it will be the Coca-Cola <clears throat> Centre at the X, probably, because they, they, they run that one as well. MLSE runs that one. Or it might be the Mattamy Centre. or it Could might, be. It might be. I haven't seen Mattamy the Mattamy Centre would be make sense. That's I, right. I haven't seen the Leaf Practice Facility. Um, um, the, that the, might be a little small, but okay. The truth is they could probably play in the Mountain Arena because everything's better if the building is full. Mm-hmm. So if they played in Hamilton, they played out of the Mountain Arena, and they sold the Mountain Arena out and then had, you know, if they play 30 home games and they say we're playing eight special games at Cops Coliseum or First Ontario Place, whatever they're going to call it, um, and the, the Com Choice facility, Com Choice Coliseum, <laughs> um, then you have specialty events where you're drawn and you can build on them and you can draw 12, 16, 18, 18, 5 on special events. I'm just not convinced that the league is to the state since they haven't played a game yet, where a non-NHL city could support it. Uh, the WNBA, I believe, is 25 years old this week, this year. I Oof. think it's 25 years old, and it's been a struggle consistently. Uh, and still, as I understand it, I could be corrected on this one, but as I understand it, still is not a moneymaker. The NBA is still helping it keep going. I I don't know if the Professional Women's Hockey League is going to have a different outcome than that one. But I'm with you. I don't know that you could put that into First Ontario Centre right now and expect you're going to have huge attendance. Certainly, I don't think you would have bigger attendance than the Bulldogs would. And... That there were nights they had five thousand. There were nights that sometimes you had eight thousand, but there were also nights you had two thousand. Yes, it will be a challenge until it builds itself up to a certain level. And if the WNBA is twenty-five years in, it would be foolhardy to think that the Professional Women's Hockey League would eclipse that in six months. Now that said. The, something that can be said for this part of it is they only have six teams. Now, the WNBA has a, a bit of a leg up on the Hockey League, as I would think a little bit, in the fact that it's a pretty big program throughout the United States at NCAA level mm-hmm. and the women. So that I think they have a maybe a broader pool, I don't know. Um, um, well... Taylor Brewer, that works for me, played at Syracuse in a hockey program down there. But I don't think that um, Florida State have a hockey team. I don't think a lot of the South, I don't think Alabama have a women's hockey program. So I think, and I'm guessing now, but I, you know, I don't think I'm a fool at this, that a lot of the northern states would have hockey, female hockey programs. So the, so the base for players isn't as broad. But if you take into the world, now you look at the world championships and the Olympics, there's like five good teams. Maybe. 
Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of women who are good hockey players playing NCAA and then don't have somewhere to go after. Yep. So maybe this this helps. Here, here's the other. I I would think this would be a concern for the league, although not at this moment. The league is being essentially funded by one family right now. Yeah. The owner of the LA Dodgers and his Let's wife. Let's hope they don't get tired of it. That's exactly right. Is you know, so you, you're going to have, uh, this, the Canadian Elite Basketball League is under the same model that uh, used to have the Hamilton Honey Badgers. Yep. Uh, that's under the same model. It's doing pretty well. It's it's expanding and it's growing with one, almost exclusively one owner. But yeah, you're, you'd better hope that this guy and his wife don't run into financial problems. They're pretty loaded. That looks unlikely. But again, don't, that this thing doesn't start losing money like crazy where they decide, what am I doing here? This, you need to have enough time to build something. You need him to stick around and her and his wife, the, the couple. You need them to remain invested long enough to try and get the legs under you. Well, I, I find the whole concept, and I haven't done a lot of research on it, which is kind of why I'm opinion-based and not fact-based, but <laughs> um, they, they negotiated and set up the CBA for the league. They brought Brian Burke in, who I have a lot of time for, and he's now running their players association and being paid by the owner of the league to negotiate with that owner on behalf of the players. Now, Brian Burke's pretty good, but how do you have a strike? How do you do that? Like, it's already been structured. Who's getting what in the salary cap? The deal was done. Let's bring Burke in, pretty credible National Hockey League guy, agent, uh, worked for the NHL. So he's got all their credentials. But everything was set in place. And if he wants to get in an argument with ownership, he's getting in an argument with the guys paying him. Yeah. They're going to yeah. be really good to pull that one off. It's, uh, you know what, I, I hope it, I mean, I hope it does well. I hope it gets an audience. I hope it catches some traction. I just, I, I more than anything, I hope that the guy, as I say, who's the f- big money behind it remains interested. And, his, and I keep forgetting and, and mention his wife because she's involved too that they stay interested in this and... Billie Jean King apparently is involved. Yeah, but I don't know how much money she's put in. I think it's more of her face and her reputation. Which is is okay because I don't know how tennis player brings your credibility, but I know who who Billie Jean King is. Her credibility is that she was a fighter, a champion for women's sports and equality and opportunities and things like that. She beat Bobby Riggs. Oh, don't start on that one. I mean, Billie Jean King gets a lot of credit for a lot of stuff. I've always had this fight, though. This Bobby Riggs story... That was just had its anniversary. I think it was the 50th anniversary just a week or two years ago. ago. I think it was that at the Houston National. Billie Jean King was in her prime and beat a guy who was, I think, 56 years old. I, I don't know that that's the moment that you point to as the greatest moment of female empowerment of all time. Do you but, think that was made for TV? Oh, yeah. No, it was Maybe. a huge, it was a huge thing. But Billie Jean King did a lot. I, they always point to that one. Billie Jean King did a lot of other things yeah, that were great. far more impactful. <clears throat> that one got a lot of attention, but it was like, the, oh, I don't know. These teams haven't even all got names yet. I don't even know what the Toronto franchise is going to be called if they've announced it yet. The Maple Leafs. The ladies team? No. So what? Uh, <laughs> Don't know. So let alone buildings. There's a team in Ottawa. I would guess that they may not play at the Canadian Tire Centre, but they may play where the 67s they are. play. They've announced that one already. Don, thanks for doing this tonight. It was fun. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.